0: Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from
1: inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. We are your co-hosts, and today we are so thrilled to welcome Lara Polson Howe to the podcast and to the studio. Welcome, Lara. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Laura is the art curator at the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is what she calls her dream job. Which I'm so happy for you. Not me too. <laughs> <laughs> and in this role, she said she acquires art for the Church History Museum. She researches the existing collection, prepares exhibitions, and works with other departments within the church to discuss the role of art in their work. And Lara received a master's degree in art history. And prior to working for the museum, she taught art history and writing at BYU for 15 years. Yes. That's neat. So Laura, we're so excited that you're here, and I'm especially excited. We reached out to you, been a few weeks or last mm-hmm. month, and just said that we wanted to talk more about Latter-day Saint women and art on the podcast and kind of left that open to you, and you brainstormed and came back with this wonderful idea to talk about a woman from our history that I had never heard of, that I imagine Same. Neither, neither yeah, I. many have not heard of before, but... We're going to talk today about Alice Merrill Horn, a woman from our history. So, Laura, to start, can you just tell us who Alice is and why you felt that a discussion about Latter-day Saint women artists should begin with her?
2: Sure. Alice Merrill Horn, in many ways, established the visual culture of the Latter-day Saints. Um, She was kind of this rock star woman. Third female legislator in Utah. She was a member of the Relief Society General Board. She was a mother of six children. She was a woman who could just make things happen. And in all of these different roles in her life, she used her influence to further art, to help people really think about what art could do in their lives and how it could make them better people. So, in very many ways, through her encouragement of artists, placing of art in church buildings in the Intermountain West in the early 20th century, she created the foundation of what we know as Latter-day Saint visual culture. I think the interesting
1: thing as I was learning about Alice is she grew up in, you know, this rural Intermountain West mm-hmm. area, but she did study and she was very educated
2: in art. Can you talk a little bit about the education she received in sure. art? So she was born in Fillmore, Utah. She was always very proud. At the time, it was the territorial capital of Utah, and she loved being from Fillmore. Um, but she ended up in Salt Lake, and she attended the University of Deseret. This will eventually grow to be the University of Utah, but at the time, Alice dubbed it the first art school in the West. She started a Shakespearean society while she was at the University oh, of I Deseret. I that. That's yep. neat. That's how she met her husband. He was also part of the Shakespearean society. Okay. So they got married. She had one young child, and her husband got called on a mission. Um, and so she's she's home by herself, and she decides to use the time to study a little bit more. So she uh, studied with well-known artists at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, Laura, how did Alice become so
0: interested in the arts? What was her pursuit like i mean as we were mm-hmm. as you've been talking as we were reading about her she seemed to have a unique upbringing and mm-hmm. a unique family legacy mm-hmm. and she also talked about feeling a divine call to her work to promote the arts so can you share more about these influences and just what influenced her to pursue the
2: art her grandfather george a smith was the church historian and so his library was well stocked with all sorts of research on on all sorts of topics and then her grandmother Bathsheba was was an artist herself. She, in Nauvoo, had taken art classes from William Major— She had walked across the plains carrying her paints that were from Europe and her sketchbooks. Um, And so as Alice was growing up in this home, she loved to flip through uh, these sketchbooks and learned. And George A. Smith had also cataloged from his travels in Europe images from the Louvre and images all over Europe. And so she had kind of this rich access repository Mm -hmm. to all sorts of artistic influence. So she had access to the art world and education that way. In other ways, because her grandmother was Bathsheba, uh, Bathsheba had been dear friends with Emma Smith um, in Nauvoo. She was one of the 18 founding members of the First Relief Society. And in Salt Lake, her best friends include Zina D.H. Youngs, Emmeline B. Wells, all these—well, Eliza Roxy Snow. You always have to remember the Roxy Mm because that's my favorite part. (laughs) Um, but, But all of these women, and they used to congregate in the Smith family home. So uh, she had access to conversations about art and literature and politics and religion and organization and and really at the feet of these um, amazing women received her first ideas of what it meant to be an artist, what the role of art could be within religion, um, how to organize, how to lead, um, and, and was this fantastic environment for her. Mm-hmm. No, I just think
1: of this little girl sitting, listening to conversations between, you know, Eliza and Emmeline. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what you know she would have learned about and heard about. Sure, I know. And then this kind of spiritual influence as well. Can you talk about both, kind of, from being a member of the Relief Society and this personal, I don't know,
2: spiritual call to the arts? I just found that so interesting. When Alice is in her 50s, uh, she publishes an account in the Relief Society magazine of this pivotal experience from her childhood. Uh, She's hanging out uh, with Eliza, Zina, Bathsheba, and Emmeline, so four of the five first general Relief Society presidents. That's incredible. Um, And she asks Eliza Arshnow, who at the time was the Relief Society president, she asks her for a blessing. And so Eliza blesses her to bring forward a work which no one else could do and which would bring great joy in its accomplishment. So Alice feels at that moment personally called, Um, And she attributes all of the accomplishments that she has, whether that's in the state legislature, on the Relief Society General Board, or any of her other influence in life, to that calling. She felt like she was called to accomplish something no one else could do that she'd find great joy in. And for her, that was to to spread art in the world and create an environment where people would become better with the presence of art in their lives. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of
1: unique for us to hear now, you know. Women are not giving blessings now. That was something historically that was happening. But I think we can relate maybe in other ways to personal revelation or a patriarchal blessing or a priesthood blessing where we can receive
2: that type of guidance today. Sure. And I think even uh, the call to magnify our talents, she knew what she was good at and -hmm. and she made it happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. we are all personally called to be influential in whatever ways we can. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sitting here thinking, and I imagine maybe
0: some of our listeners feel the same way, but um, I, I don't necessarily feel like this clear call. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like she was involved in so many things that it's kind of overwhelming. Like I'm not, I'm not an artist. Some people think I don't feel that calling, you know, to politics or other other ways to create and contribute in as many ways as she did. But is there like a place for us if we just feel like these simple women of faith? How do you think Heavenly Father wants us to feel when we hear these
2: stories of? You know, women that find their call. Sure. Well, hopefully empowered, right? I th- I think humility is recognizing our strengths and our weaknesses. You know, I think it's recognizing what we're good at and and how we can serve and where we are. We are all called, right? We're all called at the very basis as a ministering sister, right? To to help and and serve and lift those around us. And then we have individual callings beyond that within the church organization. And I think God is very aware of what we are good at, even if we aren't sometimes. Um, and I think sometimes we look back on the life of Alice Merrill Horn, and it seems driven in one direction. And while we're floundering a little bit mm-hmm. in the middle of it, you're like, I don't know which way am I supposed to go now. But often I I don't doubt this. The further we get on our lives, the more we feel led in, in specific directions. Mm-hmm. Well, and Laura, I actually appreciate this. This
0: reminded me of something that we talked about before when I was saying – you know, I feel like I am really struggling with balancing, you know, being a mom and and mm-hmm. working and trying to manage my home. And you mentioned that you, you just asked, "How old are your kids?" And I, yeah. I had two and a half year old <laughs> twins. And then you just kind of laughed because it's like, "Oh, that's why." But you mentioned
2: that Minerva Tyker took. Mm-hmm. You said she took ten years off. We would not know Minerva Tyker if there were no Alice Merrill Horn. She is the reason that 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 name is that symbiotic relationship. And Minerva Tykert also, she'd put her kids to bed and paint late into the night. But I think one part of the story that doesn't often get told is she had a baby and then she had four more babies and she took 10 years off essentially and raised little babies. And when they were a little bit older, that's when she decided there was room in her life to, to do all these things. I think, too, I think we get... Sometimes we compartmentalize our life and say, here's when I'm being a mom, and here's mm-hmm. when I'm being a working professional, and here's when I'm serving in the church, and here's when I'm doing something for me. Um, and I, at least in my life, I don't know that it has to be like that. These are all just layers, right? And I think because you serve in the church, it makes you a better professional. Because you are a mother, it might make you serve better in the church. So all these different Roles that we fill, I think, become part of our offering to God and, mm-hmm. and what we can give to Him. Um, and it's not; it all becomes who we are and is is something that we can do. And I think we need to cut ourselves some slack and say, "Okay, here's what I can. Here's my offering right now. Here's my two loaves and my fishes, right? And God will make of it beyond what He can." And but also keep in mind that. Your twins aren't gonna be two and a half forever. <laughs> they're not. Do you know what? First they're gonna be three though, so your life is about to get way harder. But they're gonna turn five sometime. Right. And 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 as they go on, you there's there's just times at mm-hmm. different times. And I think being able to to understand that about ourselves, that there's lots of time to serve and be all these things and that all these roles we have make us better able to to offer to God. Mm-hmm.
0: I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I I love that you said there's layers to our lives and our service and then also different times. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important to remember, too, when we hear about these incredible women and we can just be inspired by them. And we're looking at their whole lives, too, you know, what what they accomplished in their whole lives. and, and. we can't just Not compare moments. what we're doing now. Yeah. Yes.
2: Well, well, and I think too it's such an individual relationship between you and God and perhaps a husband gets in there if that's part of your life experience, but the comparison to to how I chose to layer my life might be different to how someone else layers their life, but all of it goes into that offering. So we've talked about this
1: divine call that Alice felt and she often referred to kind of the need to incorporate art into the gospel, and she called it the gospel of beauty. And I would love to talk more about this idea, because as someone who is not, I'm not an artist, and I've spent very little time studying art or really being immersed in art. I just was so struck with the way she talked about how kind of the role of art and beauty in the gospel. So I I would love to hear kind of what your interpretation of what the gospel of beauty means, Mm -hmm. and what the role of art and beauty is in our faith.
2: So in the April 1920 issue of the release Society magazine, um, she writes this short and stirring article that was titled The Gospel of Beauty. And one thing that's really interesting about that to me is if you think about the time of that. April 1920. We've just went through April 2020. And if you remember what we did, we celebrated the bicentennial of the first vision. Um, and that's exactly what they were doing in April of 1920 mm-hmm. as they were celebrating the centennial. Um, and so the focus of that entire magazine was what that meant to women, to Relief really Society Women. There's a great article that says, Opening the Gate Beautiful to Women. And there's articles about uh, celebrating women's suffrage, celebrating women's education, Um, And at that time, they really felt that the first vision had opened up this restoration and the opportunities to women that were available. It had been 50 years since women had earned the right to vote in Utah. And so Alice Merrill Horn's article fits right within that context, that what the restoration of the gospel meant was this gospel of beauty that rolled out because of that restoration. So she paraphrased it. She said, If God spoke to Emma Smith concerning music and art, should not we, the recipients of benefits of that turning of the key, which was the foundation Mm -hmm. of the Relief Society, be glad to preach the gospel of beauty? And she kind of gives insight into what she meant in this kind of clarion call that she issues to women. Let us take up again this study of art in our society with the hope that the gospel of beauty may dispel much of the ugliness which grips the race remembering always that it is our privilege to flood the world with the beautiful and good." By beauty, she meant things that are beautiful, things that are pretty in her way that- And not just visual arts, right? But all kind of fine art. She did, yeah. All of it was was gonna help elevate people around her. One more um, quotation that she had. She said, "'If art reigns in the home, there will grow out of it beautiful parks, streets, thoroughfares, and cities. And this is a great part. It says, life in the influence of art trains the soul to respond to God-like in man and nature, to feel the beautiful, to cherish and follow higher ideals. And this is my favorite. If I could make a bumper sticker, this (laughs) would be soul greatness is the ultimate end and aim of all effort. Isn't that great? So that she really great. felt, and that's a very specific role for art, right, that by having art in the home, you were creating soul greatness. By having something beautiful, you were creating an environment where children would grow up, um, they would embrace this beautiful situation, they would create better communities, they would become better people. Art would make their souls better, soul mm-hmm. greatness is mm-hmm. what she was trying to achieve.
1: What I love about that is I I imagine kind of this rustic, you know, country life out here in Utah in the 19th century. (laughs) And I just imagine art was probably the last thing that they felt like they could get to or that they, you know, that they had time for. And instead she's saying, oh, no, no, this is one of the the most important things to elevate our community and to make the people here better. And I think of the 13th article of faith, it's like, if we really do believe that all of those good and beautiful things come from God, then cherishing them, finding kind of a center place for them and elevating them in our home and in our church and in our society will make us all better. Laura, we've
0: been talking about how it was so important to her to expose children and families to art. And something I thought that was really neat that you touched on briefly was that she would create collections of art and and good art, I think <laughs> she said, in schools so that children would be exposed to it. And then I like, so I was just wondering, what does that mean for us in our homes as we are learning about this importance? How can we better recognize and feel this influence and create within our
2: homes, this feeling that Alice was trying to, to build. As we said, this gospel of beauty, um, because art tends to be wrapped up in ideas of wealth, she wanted to get art out of the wealthy and, and get it into the hands of the people. And, um, she writes a handbook of Utah art, and she starts it by saying, poverty is a poor excuse for ugliness, and wealth can never get rich enough to purchase good taste. So as you're talking, I'm thinking of ways that we can do this in
0: our home. You know, um, Mm -hmm. she Alice talked about just trying to change it, that art is expensive and that only people Mm -hmm. that can afford it can have beautiful art in their home. But I think there's a couple of cool resources because on the church's website, there are pictures from major artists that you can download and print and have in your home. And Mm -hmm. it's really this really incredible resource that's totally free as far as downloading. But then also me and my daughter recently, we bought art supplies just like very cheap art supplies. And we did a tutorial on YouTube and it was someone who was teaching us how to paint like the scene of the first vision. And, and my six-year-old's painting is so good that it is hanging in my home. And I just feel like that to me is so beautiful. And the experience was so beautiful. And anyway, as I'm, as I'm thinking about how Alice is perpetuating this, this idea, that was something that to me, I'm like, okay, that that Mm -hmm. connected me with Alice. It's sort
2: of just making it an intentional effort. Well, and can I say framing your children's art and putting it on a wall, there is nothing that says to them – much that this is huge, this is important, that our optics matter. um, And that's true on an individual family level, and it's true on the greater church, right? That people can see themselves as part of the family of Jesus Christ. And for your child to see themselves framed and placed on the wall, right? There's something that says very much, you are a child of God, you have a divine potential, God is a creator, and here you are creating following in his footsteps. I I mean, I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So we've talked so much about
0: Alice's involvement with art and perpetuating the beauty of, Mm -hmm. of the gospel. And she also is very involved in politics. And so we haven't really touched on that. We'd love to learn a little bit more of, about that just because hearing hearing about her is so inspiring. It's just amazing at the time she lived in and all the things that she was able to accomplish. She truly was, she was just faithful and independent and persuasive and just this amazing person. So will you just tell us a little more about her political involvement and the other things
2: that she was doing at the time? Sure. Um, she got... Annoyed is why she got involved <laughs> in politics, <laughs> uh, which I think is great. Sometimes there, there are things to speak out about and, and things to be involved in. So she's got one child at this time. Her husband gets called on a mission. She needs something to do um, to provide for herself and for her daughter. And so she becomes a teacher, which she is yeah. trained in as she comes out of the University of Deseret. And so... As she's a teacher, she gets really annoyed with the art education curriculum, and she doesn't like the system that's being taught. And at this time, women in Congress was a a very rare thing. Again, most of the women in the United States couldn't vote at this point. Um, And so she has a friend named Oscar Moyle, and he says, "Will you run for— Congress and can you fix this Osberg system that I don't like for me? He says, sure, but I'm not going to campaign. I'll do whatever you want. She's like, okay, I'm on it. And so she goes door to door campaigning for her friend. He gets elected by a landslide um, and and changes the system. But now her political appetite's a little bit wet. <laughs> well, so by, um, what I remember too is she kind of fed him exactly what she
1: wanted changed, right? Oh, exactly. Because <laughs> she couldn't run. And so she's like, you run. And this is exactly what I want you to do. She I'll do everything. So (laughs) she goes back.
2: Her her professor at University of Deserets, George Ottinger, she and Ottinger kind of lay out
1: this uh
2: that. Create a bill and ends up creating this new curriculum. But by 1898, she's like, okay, I'm on it. I got bigger ideas. Um, and so she's kind of a one-issue ticket at the time. And um, though she'll she'll pass some other bills, her real aim and purpose uh, is to create a state institution of art. Um, and In Utah, right? In Utah. Um, and so she authors an art bill. She she gets in, so she's elected to the House. There's only one – she's a third female legislator. There's only one woman in Senate, and that's Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, um, who is the first – female legislator in all of the United States. Um, And so they kind of team up together as women to pass a certain number of bills. And I think they take advantage of being the first a little bit. As they author this art bill, she writes it in her own hand. She makes copies at her own expense to pass it around. Um, And so it passes both houses. So this art bill, it provided for a state competition of art, out of which purchases were made that the state would then own. So it really allowed for the first state collection of art. So Utah's art collection is is today named the Alice Art Collection. It was the establishment of I hers. love that. Isn't that her great? kind of legacy?
1: And she was so young, right? Wasn't she? She was under. She was thirty or un, or less. I'm gonna forget. I think she's upper twenties, if I remember. Yeah. So young. And then Check she out. has, I think, a third child and she's done with her run in the legislature. Yep. She
2: gets pregnant and she decides, oh, one term's enough. Yeah.
1: So, Laura, you've mentioned kind of throughout the interview that one of Alice's greatest accomplishments is that she championed so many artists. And like you said, artists need money to, to work. And mm-hmm. I just love that that was her le- That's what so many people in reading articles and, and listening to to different things about her said, her, her biggest accomplishment was supporting and elevating others, both other artists. And then also, like you said, those in the community who maybe wouldn't have had access to the arts. So what kind of is meant by this being that, that being her biggest legacy? And I think also,
2: what can we learn from that example? So she had one of my favorite things to look at is her letterhead when she was founded this Utah artist colony and before was part of the Utah Art Institute. And on the top of that letterhead, it lists all these names of artists who were involved, and they're important artists within the LDS canon. Um, But she had her mantra that was written at the top of that letterhead that said, Foster the climbing artist, for presently they will be the old masters, which I think is great. And that really came to be. Artists she sponsored: Lee Green Richards, Rai Young, J.T. Howard, Minerva Tykert. Even if you don't know these names, they're sitting in your meeting houses right yeah. now. Um, <laughs> they've had an influence on they, you. They have right? had a huge influence. Um, and so she created um, was the mover and shaker who kind of made these happen. Uh, she had room in the ZCMI, which was the church-sponsored department store, and she would mount exhibitions all the time that that people would come and see. And it was kind of the place Place to go. Um, in ZCMI was the fancy thing to do, but wasn't too terribly expensive. Um, but, but you could go and be surrounded by art. And out of this, she used her connections and allowed people to purchase it. A lot of meeting houses, she placed paintings within meeting houses. The Lion House got redone in the 1930s, and she got art in those places. Minerva Tykert is a great story. Minerva Tykert. Again, she took those 10 years off, and at the end of the 20s, um, the stock market crashed, and that's right when Minerva starts painting again. And Minerva was the wife of a rancher. They were about to lose the ranch, and so Alice Merrill Horn arranged for the sell of some of her paintings with, if I remember, it's the young women's general president the Sunday school president, and she got paintings place places. So she really was well-positioned and was a great champion for art in order to get art in all of these places and, and was a connector. She wrote, so long as talent and industry unite, there will be art, original, spontaneous, inspirational, the kind that lives. And she really knew her part in that story. Artists can create, but they need champions, someone to make connections for them. Because they're working professionals, just, just like everyone else, trying to make the world a little bit better. And so she was really the connection between talent and industry. So that art, original, spontaneous, inspirational arts, could be created. I don't know if it was Minerva that spoke at her funeral. At her funeral, Minerva Tykert provides the eulogy, and she says, Always was this great woman looking after the welfare of the artists, hoping they would be able to make a go of it financially and still grow in spirit. Few people are so forgetful of self. Sometimes she'd lose patience with those she thought worldly. Sometimes she forgot on what a pinnacle she stood— we couldn't crane our necks high enough to get her lofty viewpoint. I have eaten with her, wept and prayed with her. I have dreamed with her. How great were her dreams, which I think is great. She made that life of lifting others.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it was also Minerva who said that her life was broad and beautiful. She lived fully and richly and helped all who knew her to partake of the same bounty. And that just really stood out to me. I just thought, what a legacy. And I think all of us can have that, you know, helping all who know us to partake of the bounties that we do, whether that's spiritual, whether that's, you know, whatever we're we're involved with, with art or our other talents. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was so incredible. And so thinking about her role, and then Laura, also with your role as the art curator for the Church History Museum, you and Alice have a few things in common. And one of these is the desire to support and elevate the Latter-day Saint artists, so both male and female, around the world. So can you share some of these efforts?
2: Sure. Sure. It's a little bit humbling to think we're in a similar role. Um, But a lot of what my job is is that I've inherited a collection that in a lot of ways was built by Alice Merrill Horn. For most of Alice Merrill Horn's life, the Church of Jesus Christ was centered in Utah and in the Intermountain West. But that's no longer the case. More than two-thirds of the United States membership uh, lives outside of utah uh, and far more than half of the membership of christ church lives outside of the united states yeah. um, so the art produced by members of the church evidences this great river of faith of members worldwide so my job is to hunt out those works to make sure that all children of god can see themselves as part of the family of jesus christ mabel frazier is another fantastic woman artist who Alice Merrillhorn championed, and she said at one point, why do they preach only to our ears and not to our eyes? And I love oh, that. Wow. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's what art can do is it preaches to our eyes who we are and what we believe and, again, provides. And so I think it becomes this great opportunity um, for us to— our visual culture represents who we are as a people. Um, so my job is to try and make sure it's representing who we are as a people now practically that's a really challenging thing to do for one thing art historians narrow in on a specific time period for a reason right they want to become very good at one area and if i'm representing the art of the worldwide church i kind of have to know a little bit about all the art of that's pretty broad (laughs) Um, and then just practically if i want to find an artist in sierra leone who's a member of the church how do you find an artist yeah, in Sierra Leone who's a member of the church? Now, this isn't something I started. This is a long tradition. Another great woman we could talk about sometime is Florence Jacobson, who was the first called in, sustained in general conference as the church curator. And she, it was largely due to her efforts that the Church History Museum was established. So it was 1984 got established. By 1987, the curators were madly scrambling, saying, how do we find artists all over the world? We have this great collection put together by a number of people, including Alice Merrill Horn, that's showing us what efforts of the Utah Latter-day Saints are. But we are much more than that. So how do we find people all over the world? Um, So one of their brainstorms that has continued was the international art competitions first one was in 1987 and roughly every three years mm-hmm. since uh, we've held an art competition, usually theme based, um, to try and inspire artists around the world working in all sorts of traditions to showcase their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, And so they were meant to try and expand that breadth. Um, So we have wonderful examples of, like I said, we've got batiks from Sierra Leone. We've got ink on paper from Japan. We've got contemporary art from New York. And
1: right now you're kind of looking ahead to the 12th art competition, International Art Competition. Yes. So if, if you could encourage those listening or... Kind of what, what would they need to know to be able to participate in that? Create. You are needed.
2: Your perspective <laughs> is needed. Coming in as we looked at it and said, okay, what do we need? What could help us fill some gaps in our collection? We thought about the theme and pulled it out of Second Nephi chapter 26 twenty six thirty three. So the efforts of the Church History Museum, the Church History Department, and ultimately our apostolic advisors sanctioned the theme that all are alike unto God. So pulled the scripture that Christ doeth nothing, save it be plain unto the children of men. He inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. He denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. He remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. I love that scripture because it maintains the cultural diversity, that there is uniqueness and value in being different. But in our differences and in our beautiful diversity, we're invited to come unto mm-hmm. Christ. And Incredibly timely. Mm-hmm. Which is important for people to see. Um, and so, again, that there are gaps in our collection, and we want to fill it. So if there's something I can say to artists... I am looking for you. I am looking for <laughs> what you bring. I am looking for the perspective you offer. I'm looking for ways that it improves our collection and improves our document of the history of the church. So please create. You are needed. So we are looking for submissions on the theme All are alike unto God. We accept submissions between February 1st and June 1st of 2021. So now is the time to create um, with an expected exhibition date between March and October of 2022. Okay, perfect. So we still have some time. There's some there's some time yet.
1: Yes. So we will include kind of in the notes to this episode, people can learn more at history.churchofjesuschrist.org and we'll post a direct link to the art competition where people can learn more. So, and I love that. I, I think we don't even know the art that we see in temples and in the enzyme, and that have come out of that competition. And even yes. if, even if people are not here in Utah to see the exhibition in person, I know people can see it online. They publish the art and the ensign. So it is something that's really beautiful and so wonderful and, and accessible.
2: Yes, you can get online. We have posted at least portions of all of our art competitions going all the way back to 1987. You can see the breadth of what members of the church have created throughout the last several decades around the world.
1: It's so
0: inspiring and such a beautiful thing.
1: Could you make any recommendations if people would like to learn more about Alice Horn? We just kind
2: of touched on her life, but her life is so fascinating and there's a lot that we can learn from her. Sure, there are wonderful places to go. Her granddaughter, Harriet Horne Arrington, has been publishing about her for a number of decades, and she's a wonderful place to start. There's been a lot of recent scholarship written about her. Heather Belknap, Emily Larson Booth, and Josh Probert have all published recently, Rebecca Ryan Clark as well, and those would all be wonderful historians. Mm-hmm. Laura, thank you so much for sharing your
1: expertise, for introducing us and our listeners to Alice. It's been so great to get to know her and for sharing more about the work of the museum and your work. So we're so glad you could join us.
2: Thank you. Of course. I'm so glad to be here.
1: And thank you to our
0: listeners for tuning into this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. If you're enjoying hearing the stories and experiences of women on the show, we would love to hear from you. Please take a moment to leave us a rating or review on whatever platform you get your podcasts, and you can reach out to us with any feedback or ideas you have for future episodes at podcasts at churchofjesuschrist.org.
1: And if we could ask a final favor, we would love if you would tell your mom, your dad too, your sisters, friends, former mission companions, others about the show, we would be so grateful. Would love your help in spreading the reach of the voices and stories of women that we share on this podcast. So thank you so much again for listening. Until next time, I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Have a great day.